Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. The Philosophy Podcast is brought to you by Oxia Time, a cool watch company focused on university-branded watches. John Canaris is the founder of Oxia Time, and he was the goalie at Penn in the late 80s who led his team to the Final Four. John is actually best known for being the goalie that Gary Gate dunked on in the Air Gate. Oxia Time makes beautiful, Swiss-made, authentic watches whose design and quality match the essence of the universities they represent. I can attest to the quality of these watches. John hooked me up with a sweet Brown University Oxia watch, and I think it's the nicest thing I own. Initially licensed with eight Ivy League schools, Oxia keeps adding new schools each month. One of the coolest things Oxia offers is custom timepieces to commemorate championships or to celebrate storied teams. Check out the UVA Lacrosse Championship watch. It's sick. Princeton did a really nice one last year as well. Oxia even did an LSU football championship watch this year. For any teams interested in creating a custom watch this season, Oxia will upgrade it at no extra cost to a championship watch if your team wins a conference or national championship next year. For players, parents, and coaches interested in custom team watches, check them out at oxiatime.com. That's A-X-I-A-Time.com. How's it going, everybody? Really excited to welcome Matt Madelon to the Philosophy Podcast. Matt is the head coach at Princeton, and uh, really fired up to have you on the show, man. Yeah, Jamie, excited to be a part of it. Excited to talk some shop and ready to get into it. Yeah, man. All right, well, let's um, let's kick it off as we usually do with your journey as a player and a coach, and uh, really fired up to hear about it and um, and hear about hear about your experiences and your mentors along the way. How far back do we start? Uh, well, wherever you feel like it. Fortunate enough to play for, uh, you know, grew up in Connecticut, uh, played for legendary coach Jeff Braemeyer at a Darien High School. So very, very fortunate to come through that program, surrounded by elite Division One lacrosse players and, and a pipeline growing up, watching those guys, you know, as, as a youngster, watching those guys on the varsity field and varsity team. So very fortunate. Um to kind of learn from Jeff and, and he's still doing wonderful things there. He's yeah. awesome. We're proud of him. He's kicking butt for the blue wave. So love him. And then um, started my college career at Hofstra university when John Donowski was the head coach played two years there uh, before transferring down to Roanoke college to play for bill pilot. Uh, so um, both unbelievable coaches. Uh, I was probably a little too young to understand uh, how great of a coaching staff I had when I was at Hofstra yeah. with, Joe Amplo, Sean Smith, Bill Wilson. I mean, like these are, these are, they were incredible. So yeah, moving down to Roanoke, uh, I'd say that's where my, my interest in coaching was really sparked for the first time. I having a defensive coordinator in Carl Haas, uh, who's an awesome, awesome guy and great coach. And then coach pilot having, you know, a guy that brought me into that program. And then obviously, you know, the goal, the goalie tutelage and, 
you know, he's a brilliant coach's mind. Um, so just seeing how those guys ran the program. And at that point, I kind of knew I wanted to get into teaching and coaching. I think, yeah. you know, I come from a background of educators where, you know, my, my dad's brought my family, my aunts, uncles, or teachers, coaches, principals, you name it. So, you know, it's just something that I'd always wanted to do. Um, and I had thought I would get into high school teaching and coaching. Um, but those are the guys that watching watching Bill Pilot run his program and being part of that and now looking back on that um he's a mastermind in terms of how to run a program in terms of the culture and the development stuff so I've learned a ton from him you know and then when I graduated I was fortunate enough to play for the San Francisco Dragons and Doug Locker who I was on the phone with last week who's an awesome guy he's a longtime GM indoor outdoor guy uh he actually coached Byron Collins at Whittier so had a connection and Byron at the time was at Stevens Institute of Technology in Hoboken, New Jersey, looking for a couple assistant coaches. So um, having lunch with Doug one day out in San Fran, he had asked if I would be interested in, in having a conversation with Byron and kind of jumped off a plane after the weekend and, and the kind of history from there. I think, you know, we, Byron and I hit it off. Um, you know, I think within five minutes, we're in the office talking X's and O's going through it and, you know, I don't know how or what he saw in me, but he, I was lucky enough to be offered an opportunity as a pretty young guy to be a defensive coordinator for Stevens Institute of Technology. So very cool. Um, that was my first of six years at Stevens. So worked for two years under Byron Collins and then four years under Gene Peluso. And Gene Peluso has turned into one of my better friends and mentors in this business, uh, an incredible coach. Um, you know, very fortunate Byron gave me, you know, to go back, Byron gave me so much leeway as a young defensive coordinator to learn, cut my teeth, try some things out, motivate guys, you know, and then as that turned over, was fortunate enough to work for Peluso uh, for a couple of years at Stevens. And there was one particular year, um, I think it was going into my second year with coach Peluso and Eric Koch, who's the associate head coach, or I think top coordinator down at WNL. And we were working together in three defensive guys, Coach Bluso, outstanding defenseman from Nazareth, Coach Koch, outstanding defenseman from WNL, myself, a, go a former goalie. So we're all kind of sitting there being like, who's going to take the offense? And at that time, I knew it was something I really wanted to do and be a part of and grow and, and kind of take on that challenge. So that's what really kind of flipped it for me is when I became an offensive coordinator the first time and just got to learn the game. And, you know, I was looking at it through the goalie lens a little bit, but in terms of how to teach Dodgers and shooters and just really sparked, I think my personality sparked to some of the offensive guys at Stevens. And, you know, I think, it, you know, we ended up getting off and running there and had some really, really impressive years. Um, and then fast forwarding, you know, after uh, coach Peluso hired me as his associate head coach and, you know, worked for him and going into his fourth year, um, there was an opportunity to come to Princeton for Chris Bates. And I was very fortunate to have a couple of division three head coaching offers. Uh, but when Chris Bates offered me an opportunity to come to a storied program like Princeton and learn under him, uh, I was a no brainer. So I owe a lot to coach Bates for, you know, the, the mentorship and leadership and guidance, you know, in my first couple of years under him. And I mean, look, to learn the division one recruiting landscape, to learn, you know, I know we talk, we're going to talk two man game later, but that's a, you know, that was, that was an eye opening experience getting to learn coach Bates's offense, you know, his terminology around the two man game, his thought processes in terms of recruiting and how he runs a program here. Uh, so, you know, I wouldn't be, I would not be where I am without any of those guys. Um, and I've pulled I've pulled more than a little bit from each of them um, and tried to pile it up and, and hope I end up having as half as successful careers as those guys. So um, yeah. yeah, really lucky, awesome. really fortunate. Um, all right. A couple uh quick questions on, on that, on that uh, 
nice uh, recap. First, are you the first and only Darian guy ever go to Hofstra? Uh, I am probably the first, maybe not the only. There was a guy, that's funny. There was a guy, Bill Peters, afterwards. Hey, Bill Wilson, awesome recruiter. Um, it's funny, my, my father at the time was working for, I think, J.P. Morgan Chase, or J.P. Morgan, and he was commuting out to Long Island. So he was working out of Hicksville. So as a young guy, 17 years old out of high school, I thought it was a really cool fit to be able to, you know, they were coming out of a, off a Final Four appearance. I loved the guys on the team. My visit was awesome. Um, I think I ended up canceling other official visits, you know, and ended up making that decision. I really oh, loved those guys, but yeah, I was, I was a young knucklehead. So, you know. <laughs> um, so uh, Bill Pilot um, has obviously known for his goalie school. Um, how did Bill impact the way you think about the goalie position and, and how you, and how, how did he mold you as a player? Sure. Um, yeah, I think, you know, the position stuff. So, you know, when I was at Hofstra, I was fortunate enough to work one of Bill Pilot's goalie camps. He just invited me. I was a, I was a former camper of his. So he always tries to bring former campers back into the fold um, yeah. to help teach and instruct and, so I was fortunate enough to come back and just got to see how he kind of interacts with his guys. And, and that's what really sparked to looking at my interest in Roanoke when I started looking at schools to transfer. So when I got down there, um, you know, Bill Pilot's an incredible goalie coach. In fact, I was just texting with him yesterday, going back and forth on sending him goalie film of guys we're recruiting just so he can just get another set of eyes on it because he's brilliant when it comes. And he's seen, he's seen more goalies than any and all of us combined, um, you know, in his lifetime. So Goalie wise, believe it or not, like he wasn't about, you know, at the college level, the way he coaches his goalies um, fundamentals, just like the way we'd coach any of our other players. He's not overhauling style. He is a great eliminator of bad habits. So he is very good at like, if you're a guy that flops, he's very good at trying to break understanding how to break those habits. If you're a goalie that, you know, just isn't moving properly or isn't squaring to the ball or isn't stepping to the ball, nothing extremely profound, but just very smart and efficient in terms of how he coaches goalies. So, you know, one example, I was playing for him. I don't know. I think my first year was scrimmaging VMI just got there transfer. doesn't know who I am. Doesn't know much about me. And I start, you know, every time I make a save, I'm throwing a little box fake away to like set the ball in my pocket. So I get a better outlet. It was just kind of my routine. I would make a save, throw a box fake away, set the ball in my pocket to make an outlet. I remember coming out to the field the next day on Monday at practice and he just looks at me dead in the eye very calmly. And he says, Hey, you'll, you know, just don't ever throw that box fake again. If you ever want to play here again, like get the ball up and out quickly. It's not how we do it. And I was kind of like, I kind of like chuckled a little bit and he's like, no, really like you throw it again, you'll never play here. Um, and so I did just that. I eliminated out of my game and you know, what, what became a bit, the best part of my game was getting the ball up and out quickly and making decisions early in transition and trusting myself and helping our team. So you know, just a small little tidbit, but how he shaped me as a player um, said earlier, you know, I just think he's an incredible creator of culture and, you know, Roanoke is, it's a tough, hard nosed place and it is a survival of the fittest. Um, you know, there's, you know, he's bringing, he's brought in large recruiting classes. He gets 70, 80 guys trying out for the team every year. And, you know, you've got to be fit. You've got to be tough in order to survive, even in order just to get to the first practice. So, um, you know, that's the true culture of Roanoke, but some of the tightest teams and organization, some of the tightest teams I've ever been a part of. Um, awesome. Whether it's, you know, whether it's shared misery or whatever it may be, but um, I love my experience down there. How many uh, years did you play in the MLL? 
Played six years in the MLL. Um, I was a uh, I was a career backup. I watched a hell of a lot of great lacrosse, and you know I, I learned a lot being a, being a guy that sat on the bench a lot in terms of how to help teams out, how to you know just really just scout. And I, I you know I'd say by my third year in the league, you know you know every attackman, you know all their tendencies, you know all the middies, you know all their tendencies, and you know those guys, the best goalies in the MLL were guys that watched a ton of tape, watched a lot of film, and really prepared for these shooters. So that was kind of you know as a guy that was in coaching and knew he was going to get into it, you know. I was very big into the preparation piece. So I always tried to help my teams that way. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure that helped me keep a roster spot for a long time. Yeah. Cool. Uh, when you got to Princeton, um, you know, Batesy uh, known for the pairs offense, how did that uh, impact your thinking of the game um, as a young assistant coach who is, you know, really just kind of getting your feet wet in the off on the offensive end after having kind of grown up as a goalie and a defensive guy? Yeah, it was remarkable. I mean, I came from Darien High School. We were pretty traditional, pretty traditional systems. Um, you know, I didn't, I wasn't able to digest much at Hofstra as a young guy. And as I get down, as I got down to Roanoke, um, you know, I just we ran some pretty fundamental systems there. We ran a two-two-two offensively, pretty base packages defensively. So that was, I was a really fundamental, basic guy. You may say like standard motion, two triangle offense, one three twos. Um, so that was what I, that was my comfort zone, you know, at Stevens tech. And we had some incredible offenses that were scoring averaging 13, 14, 15 goals a game, sent some guys to the MLL from Stevens. So had some really high octane offenses. But then when I got to Princeton, um, that was Shriver's senior year. So I'm obviously just watching these guys train for the first little while. We're going through individuals. I'm obviously impressed with the skill development. We're working on some of the finer tuned footwork of the two man game, but then to like really see, to sit and learn from Bates and, and, and hear the terminology, the communication pre-dodge, the communication between the two guys in the on-ball pair, the extensive communication in the off-ball pairs. Um, you know, he probably looks back on that year and, you know, he was, he was, he was great to hire me into his offensive coordinator position. And really it was an, an assistant offensive coordinator. You know, I was learning yeah. from Chris Bates and yeah. I think I sat there every practice and, you know, it was remarkable, this this language that was developed amongst our guys in terms of how to communicate the ins and outs of the two-man game and how defenses are playing it and how they're playing the pick game and what pick technique they're using and what's going to, how we're going to take advantage of it. And then there was also this extensive like play call list where, you know, we could almost send these starters in um, to really kind of start sparking our offense. And, you know, I remember sitting next to Coach Bates every time and you know, tribes would come over the top, you know, and maybe send a pass here. I'm like, Hey, is that every time, like, is that the look? Hey, is that the read? Is that the look? Was that right? Was that the right terminology? So for the first year, I think he had to teach me as much as he was teaching his guys, but um, it was remarkable. I mean, it was just a very different way for me to think about the game. You know, I had, you know, the pick game for me wasn't a big part of it at that point in 2006, 2007, like, or actually, excuse me, it was probably 2012 now at that point that I was an offensive coordinator at Stevens Tech. Like, the big little game had infiltrated lacrosse, but it wasn't, it wasn't like, it wasn't what it was today, you right. know? So, you know, pick game, like, sure, there were picks, but there wasn't I, like at that point in my career, I had not learned, like there was maybe, yeah, here's how you set a pick and here's how you defend a pick. But now, I mean, you know, I sit seven years removed from that initial conversation, six years removed. And it's like, there are 15 pick techniques. There are 10 different ways to set a pick. And I know we'll get into all that stuff, but so really eye-opening. I thought um, I thought Kurt Spacer was an incredible offensive mind. I thought he was awesome. Yeah. Well, 
it was uh, it was crazy what happened in the in the 2016 season um, that left you as the interim head coach, um, and um, it had to have been a really really difficult position for you to be in because your number one job as the assistant is to be loyal to the head coach, and all of a sudden you're also being tasked with you know running this program. I'm sure you had Chris's blessing. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, Chris, you, you know him, I know him. I mean, he's as, he's as good as a guy as there is out there. But yeah. Yeah, it was, I mean, look, to end up as the head coach of Princeton in the most unfortunate of circumstances, um, you know, not ideal, very blessed to be sitting in the chair I'm sitting in. Yeah. Um, but he was wonderful. I mean, this is a stand-up guy. This is a guy that has stacked so much good in his life that, yeah. you know, so for me, like, yeah, it was really challenging. It was challenging as a guy, you know, like I, I'm, I'm always indebted to Coach Bates for the opportunity he provided me and what he's taught me thus far and along the way. And I still got a great relationship with him. Um, but yeah, it was challenging. It was a tough time. And, you know, we, we, we had five games left and we had a senior class that, you know, we needed to make sure finished on a high note. And we had guys that were young and hungry and you only get so many college lacrosse games and it's such a finite experience. So you know, our, you know, our immediate focus was just shift and how to provide the best experience for these guys with five games remaining on our regular season schedule, you know, in hopes that we may earn an opportunity moving forward. But uh, the five games was the focus and it was tough. It was a, I'd say uh, it was, I grew up pretty quickly in those, in those couple of months. It was just sad, right? Because it was just not how, you know, not how things should have gone, you know, for Chris Bates, but what happened happened. And now all of a sudden, you know, you get hired as the, as the head coach. I always talk to the guys that I interview about how they build culture. And obviously you, you were a part of what the culture was. And now you have probably a lot of the, a lot of the same values remained, but you might have some other things. How did you move forward and try to get your team to move forward in such a tough, tough time and, and, and also just stay positive and, and try to build for the future? Yeah, of course. I mean, for that remaining, like I mentioned, for the remaining year, um, our guys were ready to just get back to work and play lacrosse. And that's what those guys came here to do. They came here to be great division one elite athletes and obviously get the education, but they wanted to just play. Um, and in terms of the culture piece, you're spot on. Like the culture, we were doing a nice job. We had good guys off the field, good guys on the field. You know, my biggest shift around the culture and development piece was just, a, you know, just a little more emphasis on some of the championship preparation around maybe how we practice, how we are pregame, certain things around that. Just not, not that we were doing anything wrong, just certain things yeah. that I sparked to as a player that I wanted to infiltrate in this program. So um, we had good guys. A lot of the philosophy came around. A lot of philosophical changes came around, maybe recruiting, if you look at it, in terms of, you know, we may not have ended up with Schreiber or Sowers over these last couple of years, but maybe more balanced classes in terms of that stuff. So, but philosophically, culture-wise, like, the Princeton guys do an outstanding job of understanding that when they come here, um, they're tackling something that may be a little more challenging than some of the other opportunities or offers they have had. They may have a little heavier workload academically. They may have a little more responsibility. You know, they may have a, a little shorter of an athletic experience, but, um, you know, we're a tough-minded group. And, you know, as cliche as it is, we're not a group that's going to make excuses. We're going to be proud of our experience and we're going to be grateful for this opportunity. So that's yeah. kind of really how we've approached it moving forward. And, you know, Really, I think as a, as a young head coach and, and turning that over, um, you know, I think everyone, I think, uh, you know, my biggest lessons over this, this, this last five years learned is really you got to figure out who you are before you can cement your culture, you know, and, and I didn't know who I was as a young head coach, yeah. you know, in those five games. And then 
taking over the program. It was like, okay, hey, we've done a lot of good things. You know, I had some incredible mentors and Coach Bates and Gene Peluso and Byron Collins and Coach Pilot and Coach Braymar. So, you know, it's quickly pull, pull the good from those guys, you know, try to sift out what you may not have liked from those guys or what may not have vibed with you. And then really try to just hire the right guys and move forward. And for me, um, it's assistant coaches or everything in this business, you know, like you need guys that you need loyal guys. You need guys that love the game. You need guys that, um, you know, when it comes down to it, you can have very real conversations with genuine, transparent conversations with, and you're all in it for the right reasons. You're all trying to support one another's families and we want success for everyone. So the hiring of assistant coaches is obviously, you know, I'm really fortunate to, to be around a lot of, great coaching staffs and I've loved a lot of the coaching staffs I've been a part of. So that was a big part of me in terms of the hiring process. Yeah. So 2020, you guys were so freaking good, man. Yeah. It was so sad. I mean, listen, you know, Georgetown was really good too. I felt bad for my son and Thunder Ridge high school. We had a good girls team too. I mean, man, it's so sad what, uh, what this uh, COVID crisis has done to lacrosse, but let's just talk about that 2020 Princeton team just for the heck of it, because you know, led by Michael Sowers, who was just playing at maybe you could say an unprecedented level. You guys really had it all going. You were athletic as heck. You, you shared the ball. You know, you had a Toraton level guy and a ton of other parts. Freshmen that were legit. I mean, it was such a fun team to watch. I really appreciate it. We uh, we feel the same way. We were really, you know, we were really fortunate. We got off and running, got a bunch of wins under our belt. And, you know, for that, that alone helps the program, helps confidence. And and for us, like a little bit was like a little bit was just believing in yourselves and having that confidence. And all of a sudden, you know, coming into the year, we moved some guys around, you know, moved Bo Pedersen, who was an under, um, under Armour All-American attackman to, to our top defensive midfield role. Um, we started a freshman defenseman over a guy who had logged two years as a starter. Um, we were able to start some really young guys on, on offense. And Sammy English was a freshman that stepped up as our second or third defensive midfielder. So really, it was just it was remarkable how as we moved guys around, um, the buy in was incredible. But then to get a couple wins early under the belt, you know, to obviously clip a Virginia team in an outstanding game. You know what it does to a locker room is it kind of it has guys kind of look around and and at that point like no one was caring who was scoring no one was caring who was picking up ground balls um everyone was there for each other and it was just you know i've said it to our coaching staff it was almost like the least complicated season i've ever been a part of in the first five games like guys like i'd said guys fell into their roles um it was a really selfless group uh the culture of extras is was just insane here and and that's you know, that's something that I appreciate having this opportunity to say something about this because Michael Sauer is remarkable. He was, he was playing at an unprecedented level. He was in terms of how he shares the ball, how he as a mini offensive coordinator on the field, his thought process. I mean, what I can say about Michael Sowers, what sums him up the best is, you know, there wasn't a, there wasn't a situation in practice he was ever unprepared for. He was prepared film wise, study wise, skill wise for every situation that could come up. Um, and that's what was remarkable about him. But there's a, there's a handful of seniors, um, you know, look, Phil Rob McCarthy, those guys, McCarthy down at UNC, Phil Rob, Phil Robertson down at Duke with Michael. There's a bunch of seniors, David Sturts, John Levine, Nick Bauer. There are these guys that, that their names were never littered in the, you know, in the press clippings. And, and these are the guys that were very influential in our success in these first five games in terms of developing that culture, bringing these young guys along 
training younger players that will end up taking their positions um, to win games. So just remarkable, really, really awesome year. Um, you know, really lucky to have had those five games and yeah, who knows what would have happened after that, but um, yeah, special, I mean, you special know, first no start. guarantees. That's for sure. But you guys were as good as anybody in the Ivy oh, league in general. Holy cow. I mean, you got four teams in the top 10 and, and Brown, you know, knocks off Virginia and they're, you know, fifth in the Ivy league at that time in their top 20 team. I mean, when the Ivy league is that strong, when your conference is that strong, it's pretty exciting. Oh, it's an awesome conference. Um, you know, it's a bunch of good coaching staffs. We get to recruit, really talented guys and offer incredible opportunities. So, you know, I'd imagine the Ivies will keep getting stronger. No doubt. Um, all right, let's turn, uh, switch gears here, talk a little philosophy. So what is your offensive philosophy at Princeton? So, our, you know, my general offensive philosophy um, is, you know, I want to be, I want to be adaptive to the players we've got. You know, I, there, are, there are certain things, you know, I believe in, in terms of mastering the fundamentals and earning creativity. I am a guy that really does love the creative part of the game, um, but I love attacking at all times. I want, I want us to attack the second we make a save. So coming out of the Bill Pilot Roanoke system, I mean, that was pedal to, that was full throttle at all times. It was get the ball up and out, run down, run down, run over their backs, jam it down their throat, put it in the back of the net, face it off again do it all over again as quick as you can. Um, and so I really love that. I love, the reason why I love that is because that's not only a fun system to play, um, but it's an awesome system to practice. Uh, and, and, and the teams I've been a part of that practice that way love lacrosse practice. So that's a lot of my offensive philosophy. So, you know, Coach March in my early years as a, as a head coach here understood that. And now Jim Mitchell, you know, as our offensive coordinator, you know, has really done an outstanding job of, you know, kind of bringing his up-tempo transition focus to our program. Um, and then Jim, again, we're on the same page in terms of the flexibility around play to our strengths, pay to our blessed play, play to our best players. You know, we're very comfortable in the two-man pair stuff. We're very comfortable in traditional motion offense, very comfortable in ocean and open offenses. So um, for us, it's, it's trying to maximize the guys we have. Um, but at Princeton this year, you know, we're a shoot it and share it philosophy. We want guys like we want guys that can share the ball. They can distribute. We want great passers. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a hockey guy as my background. Um, so, you know, that's a, that's a quick thinking, quick reaction. You know, you've got it in hockey, you've got to be a better passer. You know, if you want to play the game, because you're only going to have the puck and you've got to create lanes and open seams and move without the puck. So, you know, a lot of those, a lot of my hockey philosophies is transferred over into lacrosse in terms of, you know, I really do appreciate the clean stick work, tape to tape passing, ear to ear passing, clean perimeter stick work um, in terms of transfers. You know, we're looking for the fastest guys with the best stick work. Size only helps, but um, speed and stick work is, is where we think we can make our money offensively. You mentioned um, uh, open offense. Can you talk a little bit about what, what that is? Um, you're talking about no crease and, and, and sort of playing with a no crease type of offense. Is that what you mean? Yeah, sure. I mean, we haven't run it. We didn't run any of it last year at Princeton, um, but we've got it in our repertoire just because we want to be able to, we not only want to be able to play it, we want to be able to prepare against it. Um, yeah. So, you know, for uh, when my, when I see open offense, you know, I kind of, I kind of spark initially to the pair stuff and, and, and Chris Bates open offense was called ocean. And that was, O-T-I-O-N is an open motion offense. Um, so, um, you know, that was, that's essentially kind of my thought process behind it. I appreciate 
you know, pairing off and be able to teach the open offense that way. Um, and I appreciate the, the more motion component of it and be able to repair with a notion offense within an open offense. But um, yeah, I mean, I think there's absolute advantages to, to running an open offense. You can get it. You can get a defense more predictable. You're either going to see an adjacent or you're going to see a third man in defense. And at that point, you know, you can hopefully help teach your guys to read so they can be successful on game day. So um, that may be one of the more, that may be one of the offenses where you may be able to predict the defense more when you play an open offense. Yeah. It is interesting because when there's, it makes, it does make it tough on a defense when there's no crease. I mean, it makes it pretty obvious how they're going to slide to you when there is right. And I mean, as I'm talking, you know, adjacent or third man in, do you see that the same way in terms of, you know, how many, how, how many different ways can you defend an open offense in your eyes? I mean, you can go off a clear through, you can go adjacent, and you can designate somebody from the backside. You know, that's basically it. But it's but it's kind of tricky as to how that's going to happen. So if you want to go off, a, you know, when they start to overload their open offense, it makes it makes for some long slides and for fade opportunities. And I, I really think that there's so much opportunity in open offenses. I was really impressed with Air Force last year. You know, did you see their Duke game? They beat Duke and they ran like a, a circle type of an offense where there was never a designated, there was never an obvious crease. If it was a crease, it was like really high and it was kind of hard to figure out. So I, I just think it's interesting and I, I, and I just wanted to ask about it. No, I mean, I like it's something that we'll probably look to use in the future a little bit. And like I said, we've always had it in our repertoire. We didn't get to it last season, but yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's hard to defend and, and, you know, uh, we're guilty of, of probably preparing too much for crease sliding defenses, you know, yeah. like in terms both offensively and defensively, because you see most of it more often than not. For sure. And the, the, the pairs offense is like you said, it's an open motion offense, uh, but it's usually it's, you're kind of sticking in your pairs. Whereas when you open it up, like kind of like how Villanova has been making a living on offense, you know, they seem to run sort of a, a circle type of an offense. It's kind of hard to tell what anybody's doing out there besides every now and then they'll establish a mirror that you can slide off of, but they've got so much motion. So I, I think it's, um, I think it's interesting, but let's, um, let's segue into two some two man game. Um, we always love talking lacrosse and talking offense. And I'm really interested to hear some of your philosophies on, on how you teach that and why you like to do it and where you like to do it from. Sure. Um, you know, we, we have really, you know, since, we've had Michael Sowers, we've really valued the big little game and the pick play a lot. And not only for him, but that was, I'd say our true program development came around developing it with Michael Sowers, just because um, sure, he's a beat you off the dribble guy, but to be able to get matchups, I think under Pat March, we were primarily, we were really focusing on a matchup oriented offense. So we would use picks to generate matchups a lot. Um, yeah. Whereas Last year, and I'll go back and elaborate more on that, whereas last year, you know, we were using picks not as much to get matchups, but just to create gaps to maybe have our hands free to be able to make more plays and maybe get shots off in tighter or be able to make looks to the backside. So we were less concerned about getting Michael the short stick a lot last year and more concerned about moving the picks around the field in different locations. So for yeah. us, like, you know, we teach the pick play, um, in a way where, 
you know, look, Coach Mitchell does a very, he does a very fundamental job in teaching our guys how to set picks in terms of the angles, getting in and out of your visions defender, you know, in terms of not allowing the defense to set up behind it, maybe setting picks late is a term we use a lot at Princeton. Um, set your picks a little later just to make it harder for the defense. Uh, but yeah, I mean, just uh, again, like uh, offensively, we're trying to teach more of the spots on the field and how to be successful with picks. There are a couple different type of picks we can use um, in terms of, you know, whether we'll flip the hips late, whether we call it like a swing pick where you may set it on one side, swing your hips around at the last minute to set it on the other side. But otherwise, our focus offensively is really where on the field we're setting the picks. And we feel that we can really kind of dictate how defenses have to play certain picks and how they have to play behind it on the location of where we set the pick. And, and this year we did a better job than any team I've ever been a part of in terms of moving the picks around the field. So we'd run the pick, the picks at X, we'd run the razor picks that everyone terms long goal on extended. We'd run kind of deep corner picks. We'd run the trend, the picks in transition on pass down pick downs. We'd run the high corner picks. We'd pick North South coming up, you know, so we really, um, we actually really use a lot of picks now, you yeah, know, you now as I'm talking about this, I'm like, holy smokes, you know, we, yeah. we use it all. We use a lot of off ball picks. Um, so, you know, that's like, and there are a lot of traditional offenses, even motion offenses where you're picking guys off ball and people use the term like slam or however yeah. it is off ball, where that's essentially an off ball screen or an off ball pick. So um, I think more of the elaboration comes from, the defensive side, I think just reactionary and how to teach your guys how to play all these pick techniques has been eye-opening over these past handful of years. What did you mean when you said uh, create gaps for easy shots and stuff? What did you mean by that? Sure. What I mean by that is like, well, you know, like when, as we get into setting picks, maybe tighter around the cage. So, you know, anywhere from that, like 10 to 12 yard window, defensive coaches and defensive players have to make an immediate distinction are they going to fight over the pick right there? Because this isn't a very threatening spot. You see guys like Mac O'Keefe that can just step back and hit that shot from 12 yards. Yep. You know, like you have to have a guy that can stretch the defense and have the confidence to do that. But that's an amp. That's a great shot. If you can get your hands free from like 10 yards, because that defenseman is going underneath the pick. And when he yep. goes underneath the pick, we he's created a gap right there that allows us a gap to make a decision, whether it's, Hey, you're going to dodge harder and initiate contact or you're going to use the gap to get your hands free to shoot, or you're going to use the gap to make a feed to the backside or keep our offense moving. So um, yeah. I hope I articulated that well. You did really well. Uh, it's kind of like a quarterback sitting in the pocket. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, I've been thinking a lot about that and you can, you know, anytime they're going under picks and by the way, you know what people are doing. As soon as they go under a pick, you know, that's what they're being told to do. So all you got to do is, you know, set it again a little bit closer to the hashes inside the hashes. And next thing you know, you are shooting. And now all of a sudden they're going to have to come out. They will have to come out and play you. And then it opens some things up for your dodging. Well, you know, like it's funny as we were, I go back and I think about even the first question you asked me about offensive philosophy. And I'm like, I gave you a lot of, you know, pretty somewhat general answers, but you know, my offensive philosophy, if, if I had an offensive goal for our team, yeah, you know, it's for guys to be able to have the ongoing conversation with our coordinators. Um, it's almost to, you know, uh, what was special about this year was, you know, at any point in time, we're running out, like we're running out six mini offensive coordinators on the field. You know, we've got our middies running back to the box saying, Hey coach, by the way, like 
here's their pick technique up here, or, Hey, they're putting the pole on him. So we're going to attack this and we're going to attack our, we're going to attack the pole off ball. So, you know, and then you've got young guys like Michael Sowers that, you know, he earned that respect immediately, but he earned that respect because of the amount of time he puts in, in this office, along with a lot of our offensive guys and a lot of guys in our program. So the more time they put in this office, the more freedom we give these guys and the more trust we give these guys, we're a, we're a train them to trust them is that would be my offensive philosophy. Um, you know, I love that. train these guys so they can, so we can go out and trust them on game day. So I want to ask a question about the long picking for the short situation, which we don't see as often, but I think you can create pockets really easily. That pocket that the quarterback sits in because people have a, they have a tent, you know, it's easier to control your man if you, when you have the ball, if for sure, if for sure it's on you, because they, they, if they overplay you, they're going to get beat bad. Poles on the other hand can kind of pressure you a little bit. Right. And so therefore it's a little bit easier to fight over or get under, but with shorts and there's a long picking for a short, I think you're going to, you can sort of hang both players up more so like box lacrosse where they're more likely to have two players bookending a situation in which you can kind of sit in that pocket and look to feed and create some havoc. And I'm curious about your thoughts on that. Yeah, I'd say it's, uh, you know, I'm not going to say it's an underutilized part of the game, but there are coaches that have rules that say longs don't pick, you don't bring a long right. to a short. Well, I think it is like, yeah. and that's a, that is a traditional, that's a, that's a traditional rule in lacrosse. So, right. you know, you're taught, you, you've done an outstanding job of, of kind of breaking the rules and, and showing about why those rules may be outdated a little bit. So for us, like, you know, we've, we've got that rule at times, but we also understand that, you know, like if, if my six, if I have six offensive players on the field, if, if I'll use Michael Sowers, for example, if Michael Sowers is garnering the number one defenseman and player X has the number six defenseman and that's the second short stick. Well, if we're bringing Michael Sowers to pick for that guy, well, we very much know that that defensive coordinator does not want the number one defenseman to switch to the number six offensive player. And he does not want his second short stick D MIDI switched on to our number one offensive player. So right then and there, if they're holding and they're trying to maintain matchups, where you set picks could create these incredible feeding gaps for you where you could absolutely dominate and sink up off ball in front of the cage. And my brain immediately goes to like a big little behind to where you're setting picks really close to X or goal and extended. So if that short stick does get underneath, you're in a very threatening spot to either re you know, initiate contact as he tries to re-engage you, or just like you said, you've created this incredible feeding pocket and this is a pocket where like, you know, I'm going through this in my head right now. And it may be challenging for listeners to do this, but it's like, I'm sitting there and I'm imagining myself have this long come set a pick for me and my shorts to get underneath and me be able to have vision and almost like stop my feet and be extremely patient right. and sit in this gap or sit in this pocket. So yeah, I think it could absolutely use. I think, yeah. you know, I think that's a technique that you will see Princeton use for matchup purposes. So we have absolutely used that to get uh, a short right. stick on one of our better offensive players and create a mashup right there. Uh, and, and maybe in the future, we'll use it as more of a feeding component, you know? And so, I, you know, I think you're spot on there. I think it's a yeah, really, it's really, really cool thought and something that we could all incorporate a little bit more into our game. Yeah, think about it. It's like, okay, 
if you're if you've got you know six good offensive players yeah your sixth guy may not be even close to as good as michael sowers but he's still really good and it's like that person is a real threat and now you're like there's a pick somewhere near the hashes and you've because you're a real threat you can control your man you can you can sell go and back him off a little bit and all of a sudden there's he's getting backed off a little bit and there's a pick coming and now that defenseman that 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 uh on ball shorty has a choice am i going to fight over this thing or am i going to get under it meanwhile the defender guarding this the best player is also knows that like he's trained to play team defense even though he's got his matchup and there's a conflict there it's like well what am i going to do here and all of a sudden you might be able to just invite that invite that shorty to pressure you a little bit and get underneath this pick and there is no there is no help and all of a sudden you're kind of walking in or you get that 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 pull to show a little bit and now you've got them sort of both hung up. And I don't know, but I think that there's a lot of opportunity to basically create havoc because you're not going to get the ball pressure from the oh, short. You can play super simple offense. Exactly what you just said. Like if, if all of a sudden that short stick comes off it and that defenseman covering the number one player, you know, even for a minute overcompensates or moves a step in the wrong direction or takes a false step, and I can, we can just dump the ball back to, you know, right. one of our top guys. Well, then we've got one of our top guys in a rushed approach situation where, you know, we think our guy will be very successful in that moment. Sure. So yeah, yeah, you're right. Like you can really use something really simple like that to really kind of spark an offense early. And, just really, and really, if you are struggling, creating a ton of offense or running your motion sets or whatever, you can kind yeah. of use you can kind of use that philosophy to just create some offense for you. So, yeah, I think it's really smart. I also, as you were talking, I kind of sparked to like a lot of coaches are now sending that like fourth attackman out of the box, or, you know, a lot of us are recruiting these attackmen. And then if they don't end up starting for us, we're like, Hey, well, maybe we can fit them on the second midline. And then, you know, those are guys that may be better feeders, you know, so you can kind of use those gaps to play right. your advantage there. So yeah, spot on. Very cool. Like your boy slusher. Yeah. I mean, Hey, we were fortunate enough to be able to, you know, we were deep enough to be able to run a bona fide attackman out of the box. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, I sit here smiling because, you know, those are, those are good problems to have. Totally. But that's a young guy. Like for us, like we're really fortunate as a coaching staff because now we get a guy like Alex Slusher that, you know, he played above the cage for a lot of his freshman year where his entire high school career and for the team USA U20 team, hope he's a below goal line extended attackman, you know? So now we got him a, a heck of a lot of experience operating above the cage, learning how to play off ball. This is a young guy that, you know, came into Princeton and he probably had the ball, you know, he's out of Oregon and he probably had the ball in a stick 95% of most offensive possessions out there. So, you know, he was, he's now spent a year for us primarily playing off ball. Um, yeah. And I think that's going to help him. I think it's going to put him worlds ahead. So, you know, Tremendous. we're excited for that young guy. Let's um, let's tra let's transfer this uh, topic of two man game into off ball stuff. So, um, you you mentioned earlier how blown away you were in your first year at Princeton with the communication and the off ball communication. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you teach and what you're trying to do off ball um, as far as working together with other players? Absolutely. Um, you know, look, my defensive background puts me in the spot that I always felt I could coach defense if I could get guys standing in the right spots to start. Um, and I think that's a lot of off-ball stuff. I think that proper spacing and pace is is everything in off-ball offense. So I think just kind of teaching your guys 
um, how to put your defense in compromising situations to start on how to put them in a position where maybe they think they can help, but they can't play the help defense and play you successfully. So just really trying to teach guys how to understand that concept. But my off ball knowledge um, goes right back to Chris Bates. I mean, Chris Bates is a 12 year NLL pro um, part of championship teams, wing teams, like awesome played alongside of the gates, Marichex, you name it. Like he always shares stories about how like, he made a living by being a great off ball guy by opening up seams and selfless cuts and setting great picks and working his tail off and almost not stealing possessions from other people. And I've always appreciated every time he shared these stories, cause I'm sitting here and being like, yeah, this is incredible. But this is like, this is like, that's what made those teams great was having guys that understand how important those roles are. So, you know, then seeing coming to Princeton and seeing how we teach the off golf ball component. And we were doing these, you know, we were doing very cool drills where we had, we'd have a guy like dodging down the alley, almost stepping away, dodge bounce, re-dodging, like working on getting his hands up and back while we're just playing two on one off ball, trying or two on two off ball, trying to create seams and teaching guys, not necessarily run around with the, you know, like your head's cut off, like a chicken with your head cut off, but be very smart. And sometimes no movement is the best movement. Sometimes, you know, a, you know, to use a Chris Bates term, a quick little scissor where you're in and out is a, you know, and you're not really setting a pick. Sometimes a pick, sometimes, you know, a, a pick where you're on the same plane, almost like a mumbo. And then there's sometimes where, you know, we call it now like a slice cut where you're almost, you're, you're almost mumbling, but you're on two very different planes, yeah. you know? So, um, and I know a lot of coaches, you know, I think it'd be incredible if, if lacrosse could ever get to universal terms like football is. Um, <laughs> so we all know what the heck we're talking about. I mean, we're close with like razor pick or this or that, yeah. but um, you know, even as I'm using like scissor or slam or, you know, it's like, I know what the heck I'm talking about. I, I I'm sure you do, but um, you know, it's so. kind of like American league and national league, you know? So you got uh <laughs> They're a little bit different. Some people call it a drift. Some people call it a fade. But uh, well, with the also with the off ball stuff, like you know, we use it. You know, now we use it to get matchups. You know, there'll be there'll be certain defenses and defensive systems where you know on certain dodges, maybe defensive players don't move and they're okay relinquishing matchups for the better part of team defense. So then you can really use your off ball. Yeah, you know, off ball action to create great matchups for you as well. So, yeah. um, and a lot of that comes being able to, you know, being able, you know, having your guys, having the ability for your guys to be able to communicate that back to a coaching staff in game. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, the off ball game is where it's at, right? 80, 85% of the time you're, you're off ball anyways. Maybe if you're yeah, I mean, a higher percentage, but uh, for most people, they still have to be great off ball. Um, I mean, when you think back to like when you first taught off ball, like, I, I'm trying, I'm racking my brain right now. I'm just asking you the question, but like, what's the first thing you teach when you teach off ball offense? Probably create space for the ball. In terms of, you're talking like just initial clear throughs, like initial, like dodging. Yeah, pick, whatever you want to call it. But, but, but basically, you know, not standing in the way of a, of a dodger, I, I'd say might be the first thing you teach, but I mean. That's good. My brain didn't go there. When I hear off ball, I think of like the guys immediately farther away from the ball where like, you're probably spot on. Like your, your, you know, your first off ball thing should be like, what the heck are you doing adjacent to the ball? Um, yeah. All right, nice. Um, in the pairs offense, how many different sort of motions do you guys have for that backside off ball pair? I would say, 
Um, you know, we have anywhere from a two-man scripted motion with a couple two-man scripted stuff. So like I'd said, you could have a same plane pick, you could have a different plane exchange. Um, we may tie in some three-man backside motions, and then we may let them have some freedom. So we, we'll do it three ways. We'll do a two-man scripted, a three-man scripted, and, you know, a two-man freedom and a three-man freedom. So, you know, we feel, you know, with those four off-ball actions, we're pretty tough to cover. I'm really interested in hearing more about the three-man motions. Um, I, I, I feel like, you know, basically the taking a pair's offense and adding a, a, a fifth player to the, to the four man group um, is really kind of a, what, what, what Penn state's been doing for the last couple of years. Absolutely. It's just absolutely incredible offense. And I, I like it. I think I like it better than pure pairs just because I think it's a little harder to guard and you can really hang up your guy at X. Um, in the so that's actually player. a lot of what we went to last year and had to the 2020 season team, excuse me, had the 2020 season played out yeah. as more and more of these games are being televised, you would have seen a lot of teams running that because um, I, I know so. Georgetown was running that. I know Lafayette was running that. I know. And I know that just because, you know, I, I watch them or I talk to their coaches. Um, yeah. And I just think, you know, it's, it's the, it's the trend in college across and it's good coaching. You watch, you see, you know, Jeff Tambroni's group come out with this high octane number one offense in the country. And it's like, you're doing your homework in the off season, you're watching the number one offense in the country and you're seeing what the heck they're doing, how they're doing it, their spacing. And, you know, we did a, we did a heck of a lot of research into that group and how they played and how they taught it and how they developed it. And, you know, that's where you saw the 2020 Tigers move guys that like move Michael around and attack a little bit more in that. So that was one of our offenses. We found a ton of success in that um, and just loved the really, really sparked to the teaching in that. Yeah. I love that. And, and it was cool too, because of freedom. You know, you don't have to relegate your best guy to be the hangup guy either. You throw Michael up on a wing, you can put him in the three-man action. And all of a sudden, you know, it makes it really tough. And so then what I'm thinking and envisioning is, you know, if you can sit in that pocket, if you can get guys in the pocket of space, whether their defense is going under a pick, try not to switch, or whether they're switching and allows you to create a pocket – with that off-ball action going on, just like box lacrosse, it's almost impossible to guard that stuff and help. It really is. There, there's just open people all over the place. And um, I, I do think that's where the game's going. It's incredibly challenging. I mean, you're either going to maintain your matchups and you're going to give up more of the on-ball stuff, or you're going to kind of, you know, relinquish matchups and, and, and cover up team defensive-wise. And if you relinquish matchups and we put Sowers on the backside, then – our number one guy is getting a short stick off two passes every time, yeah. you, you know? So, you know, that's, that's the beauty. That's exactly how we like to coach the game. You know, we want, we want our guys to be able to make these decisions too. We don't, we like, we don't believe that's too complicated for a young, for young guys to understand. We think they should absolutely be able to communicate through that, um, you know, in and out of a game. When you talked about a second ago, we get, get the ball to our best player off the two passes. How, how often did you try to swing the ball on one off one pass across the top? We're not, we're not a one pass or two pass guy. I growing up, I was two off the ground religious. Um, I still believe in two off the ground just because I do believe every ground ball is an opportunity to score. Um, and so we absolutely want to attack off the ground. And I do believe that two off the ground rule, that traditional rule just helps youth teams, no the field, pick up a ball, yeah. shift the field. Maybe you get a, 
maybe you get a cheap one, which is awesome, which are, they all count the same. So um, now we're not a one pass or two pass guy. I think that, you know, when I came, when I was at the division three level, um, we ran a lot of two, two, two at Roanoke. I ran a little bit of two, two, two at Stevens. There would be a lot of times that I would dodge forward, kick the ball, kick it across X and then up to the backside. And I think when I got to the division one level, what I noticed immediately was most more often than not when the ball is transferring from the top to the bottom, back up to the top, it's only one pass through X. The defenses are just too fast. The recoveries are too clean. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we're a one pass. If we can get it to the backside with one pass, right. um, that'd be wonderful. Yeah, for sure. And when you run those types of offenses, if you're coming top side off some kind of a pairs offense, you, a lot of times you can swing it. And when that ball swings, you know, a wing to wing type of scenario like that, it's pretty, it's pretty difficult for the defense because absolutely instantaneously, it's like a skip pass. And, you know, even it didn't skip really, but it kind of gives you that same difficult approach that you might get off a skip pass. Yeah, we want to look, we want to be able to attack over the, the middle. We want to be able to attack down the side and we want guys yeah. to understand the reads with each of them. Um, yeah. And we really don't think, you know, we really try not to overcomplicate it. So let's talk a little bit about overall player development. What's your, how are you guys uh, developing your players? Obviously uh, in this scenario, it's pretty different with COVID, but, but let's just talk theoretically, like what, what, what do you focus on and how do you, how do you, you know, you, you mentioned earlier, you, you, believe in fundamentals and you also believe in earned creativity or something. How, how do you get to the point where you earn a license to be creative in your, in your offense and how do you develop that? Sure. It's not, you know, we always joke about it. I, I, you know, I used to joke about it when I was an offensive coordinator about like giving guys the license, literally like, Hey, here you go. You know, like, um, and more from the not like, look, the guys that ma like master the fundamentals earn creativity, not, not a program philosophy, just something I enjoy hearing and saying, because yeah. I do believe in it. And when our guys get here, we teach the fundamentals. We break it down. We teach the fundamentals over again because um, not only do we believe in it, but we want to know what kind of learners these guys are. We want to know what kind of, you know, how attentive they are, how willing they are to change, um, how willing they are to focus on their craft on even the littlest things that we believe are super important. And when it comes down to, you know, if we're, if we're fortunate enough to make it to a final four and you get to those weekends and those, those short preps, well, you know, those games, our belief for those games are one with fundamentals, um, you know, because the schemes at that point, like, you know, you got to play, you got to rely on your fundamentals and rely on your instincts. And, and we believe our instincts are going to be developed through our fundamentals. Um, how do you so, define, how do you define fundamentals? Uh, for me, stick work, footwork, body can, some of the, some of the simple beliefs, like philosoph our philosophical, philosophical beliefs. So it's like, you know, we believe in clean perimeter stick work. Um, so we're going to train it. You know, we believe when we're transferring the ball, if we're not throwing the ball inside for a pass, you know, it's, we term them automatic passes. It's like an overpass on defense. Like, you know, when we talk to our defensemen, it's like, look, go out, throw 10,000 overs so that when you get in the game, you're never thinking about it. If that pass can become automatic, then you can immediately start thinking about the next part of the game. So offensively, you know, our best offensive players have such fundamental stick work to where like they're not worried about their stick work in the game. They can start thinking about who's sliding, where's the two coming from, what's happening off ball. Whereas if you're worried about your stick work, then you're never going to be able to have that developed thought process. So fundamentally stick work, stick work, stick work. We want clean stick work. You know, do you have to shoot overhand every time? No, we're not super rigid. We do believe that there are higher percentage plays. Um, but 
you can absolutely choose to make the lower percentage play. We just hope you make it more often than not. Otherwise, you know, it may get loud and uncomfortable for a minute. Um, <laughs> but outside of that, no, we, you know, like it's a, it's a good question actually. And I'm thinking about it as you're asking me of it, you know, fundamentals, we just, I, we just appreciate, you know, the cleanliness of the game and stuff that in the heat of the moment, we want to be able to rely on. For example, you know, we really teach over the shoulder passing because in order to be a great transition team, I think you got to be able to handle over the shoulder passes. Um, and I just don't think, I think that, you know, you put a lot of college teams out there and guys are reaching back and catching the pass and they don't have just the clean stick work of being able to hand her an over the shoulder pass one cradle and out. So um, quiet stick work is a term I've used a lot offensively. We try to eliminate a lot of the waggle in guys sticks and make it very clean and efficient. Um, so you can get your shooting strokes off quicker. And, and I tie that into my goalie philosophy of, look, you take a shot as hard as you want from 12 yards, but if you wind up and I get to watch it, I'll save it every time. Whereas more often than not, being able to get a quick release off, you can be a lot more successful as a shooter. In order to have a quick release shot, your fundamentals have to be very buttoned up. Now, look, you see Michael Sowers split somebody up from X and pass the stick behind his back, you know, really fancy. And you're like, what the hell? You know, he's probably going to look at you and say, hey, coach, like that was actually the best option for me right there. If I had rolled back, I would have lost vision of the offense. If I brought the stick in front of my face, I would have lost. I would have ran the risk of getting poke checked. So that was the fundamental play. And at that point, you're just smiling. But, um, you know, not fundamental for everybody. He's got the license. It's like James Bond has a license to kill. Yeah. Michael Sowers has a license to split behind his back. Sure. But it's like, look, with that stuff, too, we want guys like we want like your stuff. You've 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 flourished in the creative part of this game. Um, and Coach Mitchell loves that. And our guys consume a lot of your content. So, yeah, we appreciate all of it. We want guys to have that. But, you know, I want guys to be able to connect. Yeah, I agree, man. Here, you know. The fundamental is you have to be able to deal with pressure. The fundamental is you got to be able to possess the ball. The fundamental is you got to yeah. be able to, like, beat people and draw two and take advantage of two-on-ones. And, you know, to, you have to have great stick work to do that. And there's a lot of different ways to do it, right? Absolutely. Everybody's a little different. Let's, um, let's talk a little defense. What, sure. I know we spent a lot of time talking offense, but uh, what's, the, what's the Princeton defensive philosophy? Same, similar to the offense, we want to play to the strengths of our guys. You know, we're going to, we're going to show you man to man. We're going to show you zone. We're going to show you a couple different man to man packages throughout games. Um, we're going to see what matchups we may be able to win and where we could take advantage of them. Uh, we may move a number one defenseman on a number three for a quarter, just to see if we can get some turnovers, but defensively fundamental win your matchups and develop the instincts. Um, we really want guys that hunt rollbacks that, um, do a good job of really anticipating ball movement so they can either crowd a dodge or, you know, get a good turnover on the perimeter. Uh, we really are looking for guys that can, you know, we'd love a guy that can come and take it off guys, you know, take away defensemen, but we just haven't, we haven't seen a lot of those guys. So we're just trying to create defensemen that can dominate uh, in the gray and make and get turnovers instinctually. V-hold or no V-hold? Whatever you, whatever you want. Whatever gets it done. I'm not, you know, like, hey, do your job. Do it well. You know, like if you're a behold guy, because that works well, then, you know, your guy under, your guy underneath you better know you're a great behold guy so we can get some, so we can maybe slide coma or we can get a, get an early double and create some turnovers. And if you're not a behold guy, you know, then the guy playing high side, if you get beat to your butt end, he needs to be able to overhelp a little bit. So as long as your teammates know your tendencies, we'll let you play to your strengths. 
Yep. Uh, and one on one, Kucherich may crush me for that one, but. Uh. <laughs> and uh, are you a uh, back off, backpedal and poke and turn and turn your hips and run, or are you more of a move lateral and bump guys and run? I'm a little of both. I, I see the value in both. Like I know, you know, the trends of defense in terms of the value of ball pressure um, versus the value of team defense. And not that ball pressure is not team defense, but you know what I mean? Like get out playing the ball, getting in their mix, bumping them off their line. Like I, I see a lot of value in that because it is challenging for an offensive player that's getting a harassed cross check. You know, what's the, you know, what's my next pass? Where are they sliding from? You know, where's my outlet? Am I going to shoot this? What am I seeing? So there's the offensive guys deal with a lot, but um, on the approach, I mean, we, we teach the approach. Uh, we don't over teach it. You know, we teach our guys a handful of ways to approach it. You know, we'll teach them the lateral, be physical, get in their mix. We'll teach them backpedal and punch. And then we'll kind of see what works well for each guy. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to say we've got a cookie cutter way to play it uh, because okay. We don't have four D middies. They're the exact same way and the exact same athletic capabilities. So um, as long as our guys understand how each one of our guys play it, uh, we'll be in a pretty good spot there. Now, I will say come game day, we probably do decide on maybe a technique on that day that we're going to start with and I'll try to play that that way. Um, but it may vary game to game. and It may vary quarter to quarter. And it, it'll vary matchup to matchup, I would assume. It, it absolutely can. I think that you know, in, in years past, I've probably overcoached the approach mm -hmm. um, and overemphasized it. And look, not because it's not important. I mean, it is the, you know, we expect when, when our guy takes an approach, if we were to take an aerial snapshot, like it should dictate the plan of the defense. Um, so we very much do believe in the philosophy behind the approach, but in terms of how to do it, um, there are a couple ways to do it. And then we'll find how our guys are being successful. Yeah. And there's so many different approaches, you know, and I kind of feel like people just sort of uh, work on the same approach, but, but really like sometimes, you know, you can be all the way out on your guy. So you don't even have to worry about, it's not really an approach anymore. You're now you're just guarding him. I can't uh, tell you how much you know, time we've spent talking to D back coaches, watching football films, watching, figure out how to, what's better backpedal and punch, flip your hips, you know, bump and run, um, you name it. And, we haven't netted out one way or the other. We just, yeah. as we kind of teach and talk to our guys about it, they may spark to something or like, Hey, all of a sudden, you know, we're going out and we're playing bump and run technique or we're playing, you know, play X technique, you know, and all of a sudden we're back, we're reviewing the tape and we're like, Hey, Holy cow. Like these two guys do a really nice job of covering the fast guys in this technique. Like if we get speed matchups, maybe we can, you know, maybe this can really benefit us. So we're really just, again, we try to, we try to play to our guys' strengths as much as we can. There was a time when everybody just taught, you know, stick out backpedal. And there's still a lot of that, you know, backpedal, turn and run, stick out. And uh, it's a great technique, that. except for what it does is it does give up. It gives up, you're going to give up position to an attackman, if you're doing this with a long pole from behind the net, you're going to give up position because you're really not going to get a good bump on a guy when you're backpedaling because you don't have the leverage behind you. And so therefore, you know, you're going to have ball pressure with your stick out, you know, but you're going to give up position on the island well inside the hashes. Whereas I think if a defenseman can play it more like a really good shorty where they can bump you and get you, put you wider, you can end up having a guy closer to the hashes when they get to the island. And that, I, I, to me, that seems like, you know, the, the give and take of it. It is the give and take because 
you go out and you bump them off their line and you do that. Well, it's like, you know, your defense behind you doesn't know where or when you may get beat, you know, like they're kind of, they don't know. You may go out and get a good chunk of them and defend them way out. And you may go get a bad chunk of them. And now all of a sudden your defense may not be used to sliding that where like the traditional backpedal and punch, it creates more of a traditional decision-making tree behind it. Um, so I think that's the give and take. I think that you yeah. better on ball defense by, by bump and running people. By it's getting- more predictable, but you're giving up position. I just don't see the punch part actually happening. That's the part that I think like in football, you can backpedal and you can actually punch with one hand. And in lacrosse, you have two hands on a stick. And, and when you're backpedaling, it's really hard to get a good a good punch on somebody. Yeah, I don't know. I think that just came – I think that came as a football term. Like the it is. It is, totally. I mean, I, we've all looked at football D-back films, right? Absolutely. And, like, I get the backpedal punch, and you're right. Like, we've – you know, you know, Coach March, to his credit, you know, does – he's always taught points of contact. So, you're talking backpedal and punch, like – that's a great time to catch a D midi on one foot and put your shoulder in his chest. Or like, you know, if you're dodging a guy from X as he backpedals and opens up, like yeah. put your shoulder in his oh, chest, yeah. knock him off his line right there. Like, don't, wait, don't Keep wait for a to initiate contact. Yeah. Initiate it early when they're on one foot. So, you know, we've talked a lot of it to our guys about how and when to initiate contact depending on those techniques, but yeah. uh, maybe a little overcoached. Yeah. Um, I love the terminology you use, hunting rollbacks. Can you talk a little more about that? Sure. I mean, we try to, I, I guess this is more come to fruition as we talk about defensive recruiting, you know, and we're like, you know, cause all, you know, a lot of these guys look buttoned up in their approaches and their form and decent Island player. They're good physical kids. They're fast, but you know, we really look for guys that really are aggressive in that, like, you know, in the instinctual part of the game, like, can you anticipate a rollback? Because those are, like I said, I think it's easier to find a guy that anticipates rollbacks well than it is to find a guy that has the takeaway checks to take the ball off somebody. So um, how do we teach that? That's like the, that's the million dollar question. Like, how do you teach defensemen in the gray area? It's like, if I had that figured out, you know, I have a lot of hardware behind me, but we're figuring it out. Um, So but that's it. That's the, that's what we, that's what we try to teach. We try to put them in a lot of drills and scenarios where, you know, they can, you know, whether it's four V fours or five on fives, where, you know, you could potentially be seeing a lot of rollbacks and how to create opportunities. And it's not just, it's not just the, the, the guy adjacent creating the rollback, but it's the guy two away that may be able to fly out and get a poke in the next guy's chest and get a turnover on the perimeter. I mean, Gene Peluso, you know, my mentor from Stevens tech, he's got a philosophical, you know, approach defensively that's called get your last. And every time his defenseman's on ball, he wants his defenseman to get their last, which means if you're running down the alley and you're going to transfer the ball to X, well, he wants his defenseman to get that last slap on the gloves. And, and his philosophy behind that is, Hey, you'll generate some turnovers on lazy perimeter ball movement. But if not, maybe you make that guy take two steps away to free his hands and then your recoveries are cleaner on the backside. So it's just a good little, it was a good little way for, for Stevens to generate turnovers, but also get guys more aggressive. So as yeah. we say, hunt rollbacks, like we try to put guys in drills and make them more aggressive. Now, do we necessarily want guys flying around in the games? Well, that's the train them to trust them. Like if you make yeah. the decision, make it, you know? Right. 
And a lot of times when you crank up the, the pressure, it's pretty easy to reel it in, it's, but it's hard to get people to crank it up the pressure. Well, you, so look, even like, you know, to go back to your to point about V-holds, like let's say you're a V-hold team. Well, you know, like if, if me and you were playing defense together and, you know, you're a right-handed defenseman and you're getting dodged up to the righty island, you know, well then at that point, like I know you're a V-hold guy. I know that's a good time. The percentages say you're going to roll your guy back. So if I, you know, if I got my head on my shoulders and I understand what the coaches are asking me, I should be anticipating a rollback here and anticipating an opportunity to get a turnover. So I think just really trying to prepare your guys to understand those parts of the game is really where you can help develop the instincts. No doubt. All right, last uh, last topic here. Let's talk a little recruiting. What are you looking for in a goalie recruit? Oh, well, I'll tell you, I, this is um, it's a hard position to recruit. Um, I look for- By the way, you're going now. Oh, boy. I should be rubbing your feet. Um, <laughs> you're, the, you're the man. Uh, <laughs> I, I remember that. What was that like? 2016 Kip Turner and I me you and Kip on the far field and you're like look I don't know what to tell you guys but every time I watch this kid Peters he has 25 saves and I'm like all right nice we both watched him um at that point and Eric you know he's got to still laugh because his stick works only okay but uh, his stick work was not good but he saved every single shot that came his way with no false movement. So long-winded answer to the question. Um, I'm glad we can laugh about that. I love Eric Peters. Uh, he's stud. Um, he is the best natural reactor I've ever seen. Um, I was a cheater as a goalie. I was a baiter. I studied the game. I studied shooters. If I were playing on man down and, you know, Calm Monroe's on the lefty wing and he's got a thousand man up goals and he's a freshman. I'm telling my defense, I'm like, hey, that's the Torton winner. I don't ever want him to shoot the ball. And they're like, coach, they're like, or they're like, Matt, that is not the Torton winner. I'm like, I don't care. I don't want to see that shot. I'm not good at saving that. And he's great at shooting it. So like that was my strength as a goalie. It was the cerebral part of the game. Allow my help myself see shots that I can save, dominate outside the cage. So I am not looking for myself as a goalie. Um, you know, I think that that's the hardest part for me in recruiting goalies. I have to get out of my own it way is. and say, Hey, I need to find the true patient ball stopper, the, the sit and see it from the outside. And, um, you know, I was talking to the goalie Smith guys the other day who do a good job running their goalie training. And I'd say one of the things I look for in goalies is especially in highlight tapes and recruiting is high saves. And, you know, a lot of people may be like, what? And Standing I'm like, up to high heat. Yeah. You look at goalie highlight tapes and 95% of them, they're like saving shots from inside of six yards and low shots. And that either tells me that you don't save the high ones or you don't value them. And I think offside high is the hardest save because if you can make that save, it means you have no false movement. Because if you have any false movement, you'll never catch up to the offside high heat. Um, so Bill Pilot and I used to laugh. He, he runs these goalie schools, like you mentioned. There's a technique on offside high save that we call churning the butter. It's just an ability to make a clean, efficient movement, get the ball up and out. I can tell you 10 seconds into a goalie video if he's ever been to a goalie school or not. Um, 10 seconds, whether or not he makes the save the right or wrong way. Now, is it, I, I will never not recruit a goalie for not making the save this way because you can easily teach a kid this. Yeah. You know, I think that, 
that's what a lot of us need to get out of our own way in recruiting is like, Hey, some of these skills are very teachable, are very yeah. coachable. So you just need to find the right guy. So goalie wise, long winded answer to your question. Very, very patient um, from the outside. I think those are the hardest shots to save inside of eight. There's no technique, be your own goalie, you know, commit early, be explosive bait. That's, that's you, that's your own technique, but outside of, outside of eight, um, you know, you just got to be able, you got to be patient. You got to get your hands to the ball. And I like goalies that catch the ball in high school, because if they catch it in high school, they've got a better chance of catching it in college. If they don't catch it in high school, not catching it in college. Interesting. All right. So what about, um, what are you looking for in a defenseman? Um, it depends what we're looking for. We recruit a handful of, we recruit a couple different molds of defensemen. You know, we're not necessarily sitting on the platform saying, Hey, we're only going to recruit six foot to six, two defensemen that move this way that, you know, we need, we need fleet of foot guys that can cover the small scat backs. We need big guys that can cover the bruisers. We need cerebral guys that can talk through a defense. So we look for a little bit of each. We normally recruit around three or four defensemen a class. So we try to clip a couple of each of those guys. You try to couple, you know, elite athletes, a um, couple cerebral guys, you know, a couple of guys that really may understand the two-man game at a high level in high school. And then, you know, a couple butt kickers that just go out and dominate their matchup. So we'll take a little bit of everyone. How much do you value uh, stick work and, and skill? A ton. I mean, you know, for us, stick work's got to be automatic at this level. You know, we're like, you know, I think it's, I think it's a slippery slope to when you recruit guys and they're like, Hey, they're raw, they're raw. And then it's like, all of a sudden their junior year, it's like, Hey, they're raw. And it's like, Hey, well, <laughs> they're raw. Then they're probably still going to be raw when we they're get raw. Um, so no, we look I first time GB, like I said, in goaltending, I didn't, it's a crazy position. I never claimed to be the best ball stopper, but you know, I would take my, I would take pride in having eight ground balls a game outside the cage. And those are eight times I got to eight less times I got hit with the ball or had to make a save. So, um, I value that a lot. I think picking up a ground ball, you know, or stealing an end line possession, those are the two easiest ways to get defensive stops and end the possession. So we value stick work a ton um, in terms of the defensive guys. Do you recruit D middies? We absolutely do. Um, we have, uh, we probably have three, we have three recruited defensive midfielders in our program for the first time. Um, and we moved some of our better athletes to the defensive midfield position and it absolutely helped us. A lot of times when a, when a club guy is like, oh, I got a D midi for you. You're like, yeah, thanks. No, thanks. But the fact is, is that, you know, your shorties that can be locked down guys. It's, you know, as we know, it's like having Steven Gilmore. I mean, it's like, you just don't have to help them as much. It's huge for your defense. Huge. It's incredible. The confidence, the, you know, and our, and look how we play in transition and off the wings, you know, we put a lot of value in those guys. Um, you know, we call them D guys, but, you know, Coach Mitchell claims them as his guys the second they step over the midline, which is awesome. And that's how we coach them. You know, we yeah. want to coach them both ways. So now we love the, you know, the defensive midfield position. We've always understood the value there. Um, you've got to have the size and speed. You've got to be able to cover both guys there. Um, the better you get, the better your unit is there. So, um, you know, we really do put a high, high priority on that position in our program. How, how do you evaluate uh, Shorty's ability to guard the ball because pure athleticism doesn't necessarily add up to being no, great. It, it doesn't. And neither does, you know, just brute strength and manhandling someone. Sometimes you really don't want to push them off to the side and create separation for them. Defensive midfielder is a position on the field where these are, you know, they're dodging 
absolutely bona fide stud offensive middies, former attackmen that are trained to get a step on you. They're going to get a step on you. So if they do that, how can you hang on? How can you impact the defense? How well do you recover? How well, how fast and efficient is your footwork? Um, and that's, that's after you get beat. That's knowing, like, I would love to say to my D middies, hey, the guys that are going to play are the guys that never get beat. And I'm sitting there, and on the other adverse side, we're coaching our offensive guys, and we're like, every single one of you guys are going to get are going to beat your defender. Everyone, you don't play you're for going to. You're not going to stop. So, it's like, yeah. so you're going to give up an advantage. So it's as that advantage gets given, how good are you in that moment? Are you able to continue to drive? Are you able to stay engaged? Are you are you able to engage and play team defense? So um, to your initial question about how do we evaluate the on-ball stuff? Well, we teach them all the approach techniques. We teach them all the pick techniques. And then, you know, production doesn't lie. Go out and do it. Yeah. Some guys are so good at being patient. This is just like, the, just like Eric Peters in the goal. Some shorties can just wait and they just have a sense for when you're actually making your move and they can explode and jack you. And I feel like that ability is really what separates the great on-ball guys. Oh, it's remarkable. I think that, I think that, you know, I've been guilty of it where we haven't recruited D middies and we just take the best offense and we take one of our O guys who comes in and then we just plug them on the D side. And, you yeah. know, I don't think they, they may not have there. the, yeah, they may not have the perspective of how much that's truly going to help them to learn offense and learn the ins and outs of pick play from both sides of the ball. You know, they're sitting there being like, coach, you recruited me to score goals and, you know, you're already week three and I'm already a D guy. Like, you know, how hard am I going to work for you right now? You know, and, and that's, and it's just a natural reaction for a yeah. young kid. You know, and so you're like, actually, you know what? I think your poll is going to be getting a little longer. And <laughs> <laughs> they really I'm not saying we've had guys that react like that, but I would have. I was like a young punk. I didn't know. I didn't know my head from my rear. You tell me. You recruit me. Tell me I'm going to score a lot of goals for you, and then you you stick me on the defensive side. I'm like, holy cow! Like, what the hell just happened to me? Um, and that's oh, not no. the case at all. But you know, these guys should be so proud. You get our our D middies play more than our first line middies. Oh man, I mean, your shorties are your MVPs. Um, so let's talk a little bit about recruiting Omidis. Um, are you are you playing positionless lacrosse? Are you looking for two way guys? A little bit of both? Yeah, a little bit of both. We play positionless lacrosse in the sense, like I appreciate that term, you know, just because we have, uh, you know, we had one of the best ex attackmen playing above the cage his entire senior year. Um, we would have loved to leave him at X, but no one had let him caught the ball back there, so we we were forced to move him around. Um, so yeah, we were playing a little bit positionless lacrosse. You could put a shorty behind there. We have guys operate. We believe in making long sticks cover below goal line extended. They're not used to doing that. So we'll put guys down there. But in terms of how we recruit middies, um, you know, a Batesy term is we want guys that can shoot it and share it and not just shoot it. I think that in the recruiting process, middies are so boring in terms of they just run down the alley and hammer these balls. And it is impressive, but I'd love to see a guy you know, step away, reattack over the top, knife the hedge and kick it to the adjacent. Like that is a more realistic college play than you just howitzering the ball down the alley. Um, so yeah, we want guys that can do a little of both. We really appreciate the guys that can pass the ball though. Um, good passers are, are hard to come by. Yeah, no doubt. I love the way you just said uh, a more realistic play and it would be great if, if club programs, you know, opened that up. 
because you just don't see much of that. Um, you don't see enough of it, I should say. There's just way too much alley, 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 alley. And I think part of the reason too is just like everyone's in the way because everyone's running these three out high, you know. And so there's like nowhere to go topside right off the bat mostly anyways. But but yeah, to be able to get down, roll back, post up a little bit, fake, and be able to use speed and snap it off on the run, right? Yeah, I mean, and good. Middies, again, like, I, like defensive, we try to... We're not trying to recruit 10 of the same guys or 12 of the same guys on a roster. You know, we absolutely want some spot size. We want some speed. We want some guys that can stretch a defense, you know, and, and we want guys that obviously, you know, it, it, it's, it's tough to find the total package in terms of guys that are elite at everything. But yeah. you know, if, if we get, you know, we recruit a lot in our office, we use the term, you know, versatile, you know, the, we want guys that can, that can do a lot of things, um, you know, oh, maybe yeah. play a little attack, play a little midi, dodge from the wing, play the two-man game, power dodge, speed dodge, slow dodge, you know, there's all sorts of it. So yeah, we want to go, we want guys that can do a, do a whole array of things. Um, so let's talk a little bit about attackmen. There's obviously positions within positions. What are you looking for uh, as it relates to that on, on the attack? We've spent a lot of our time really focused on below goal and extended attackmen. I think it, I think there's, it's a, it's a tough position to find. Um, you know, we've, we've, categorized as the staff, you know, we kind of have a numbering system to how we recruit. We kind of, you know, when we talk about attack, when we talk about below goal and extended attack, and we'll talk about off ball attack, and we'll talk about wing attack, and, you know, and we don't, in a class, we try to really decide, or do we need below goal and extended guys? Do we need wing players? And a wing player could be a midi that we recruit as an attackman um, that we believe just dominates from the wing. So um, for us, Below goal line extended tackman has been it's been a big focus because it's really it's not challenging to see the IQ of these guys, but you almost need to know a little bit of what they're running offensively to kind of see their reads and see if they're making them and are they making the reads. Otherwise, like, you know, are they beating their guy one on one? Are they doing a good job putting pressure on him off ball? Is he catching the ball with his heels on the end line or is he catching the ball tight to the crease? You know, so we try to evaluate that to how they'll fit into our offense. But we also understand that the way we're coaching that um, we're not kind of we're not we're not we're going to oversimplify it to where we can teach these guys some of these skills, too. So we are looking for the natural athleticism, the stick skills, um, you know, the ability the footwork. Awesome. Coach, thank you so much for coming on. This was a total blast to talk lacrosse with you. It's been too long, man. I know I, I would I would love and I'm glad, you know, I did speed through that journey. So you know, the front part of it. So if I did forget anyone, um, there were, there have been so many guys that have impacted my career and I didn't invent any of this. Um, yeah. You know, I'm just, I'm just grabbing from everybody else and trying to surround myself with the best assistant coaches. And, you know, we've got a wonderful alumni group that takes care of our program here and we've got a heck of a locker room. So we're really fired up and I'm happy to be a part of this and thrilled to join you. Awesome, man. Um, Hopefully there is a 2021, but uh, no matter what, best of luck and let's uh, keep in touch. All right. Thanks a bunch. All right, man. Take care.